Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast on technology and science. And coming up... I speak to Professor Joe Dunkley of Princeton University about her research in cosmology, astrophysics, and the origins and evolution of the universe. I'm looking for evidence of this very energetic expansion of the universe in the earliest moments. And why the world's waters are becoming more blue. The phytoplankton are going to decline, they're going to be less of them. And in that case, the world's water looks even bluer. But first, how should we be thinking about data ownership? Last month, the musician and AI entrepreneur Will I Am wrote an article for the Economist's Open Future Initiative online. He argued that people should own their own personal data as a human right and be paid for it when it's used by social media firms. We spoke to Will I Am about his ideas. I should be able to say, hey, Siri, who has access to my data right now? Hey, Siri, who has access to my camera on my phone and listening to my microphone? What other apps are compromising my privacy right now? There should be some transparency for me on the instant to say, Siri, who has access to my camera and microphone right now? However, an alternative idea is not to have data ownership, which implies market transactions for use, but instead a framework that gives people rights over their data. It is an idea advanced by Martin Tisney, a managing director at Luminate, a nonprofit group working on digital rights and a leader in the open data movement. He made the case in an influential essay entitled, It's Time for a Bill of Data Rights, that appeared recently in MIT Technology Review. He joins me in the studio now to discuss the issue. Hello, Martin. Hi, Ken. Martin, let's start with the status quo. What is the problem now? So the problem now is that People have awoken, especially in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, to the fact that they don't have control over data about them and data that they produce. So there's this thirst for people to have control and agency over data about them. So now today we already have a notice and consent regime in the United States where you have to sort of click and read the terms of service and then click on it that you accept it or not read it and click on it and accept it. And likewise in Europe, you've got a stronger regulation for the GDPR, which is for protecting privacy. Why are those things inadequate? They're inadequate because people basically, you know, when is the last time you've read a full terms and conditions on a website? Never, but I know there's a backstop. I know I can call a lawyer. You know you can call a lawyer. Do you know of anyone who's ever called a lawyer? Yeah, it doesn't really work out well for them. So what is wrong with owning data and seeing it as a commodity? There's a couple of problems, in my view, around um, data ownership. So first, let's come to the Will I Am article. The first thing he says, I completely agree with. So he says, personal data needs to be regarded as a human right, just as access to water is a human right. Great. 
then I think it's a slippery slope. He says the ability for people to own and control their data, great, should be considered a central human value. The data itself should be treated like property and people should be fairly compensated for it. This is where I think the argument starts to lose its potency. And the reason for that is that ownership implies that if you own it, you can then sell it in perpetuity. It's alienable. It's yours. And to give you another example of a right, the right to individual freedom isn't compatible with the ability to sell yourself into servitude. I can't then decide to be a slave and at the same time have a right to individual freedom. But there's the John Lockean view of personal property in the sense that your ideas come from you and therefore attach to you. Why wouldn't the data that comes from us attached to us as a property right as well. I think the problem, look, is that the advocates of ownership think that data is mine, so it results that it's mine to sell. But data isn't mine, it's me. And I think that the problem with data, as we currently construed it, is that we over-individualize it, right? So most of the critics of the argument around data as property say data isn't a product like physical products, it can have many owners, Data is non-rival. Data from groups is more valuable than data from individuals alone. That's interesting. My focus is a little different. My focus is on the risks of the approach around individualizing data. So how would this rights framework work? What do we need to do to put it into place? So I think what we need to do to put it in place with the Bill of Data Rights, I'm not trying to create a charter which different governments would sign up to. What I'm looking to is, first of all, what already exists in the law. And in some cases, it's a question of adapting existing legal frameworks. So if you look at a right, which I think we should have, which the right of people not to be discriminated against on the basis of data about them or about others, I think there's a big opportunity in the UK to look at employment law and to ensure that employment law includes issues of data when it looks at discrimination in the workplace. I wonder if we take your approach, whether we're going to be so uneasy with the data discriminating against us, even if it's accurate, because if we're using data to determine who can get a job or who can't based on data that's not connected to you, but data based on a class that we're simply profiling again, and we're just not profiling based on, say, sexism or racism, but it's still profiling and it's still going to make people uneasy. I'm not anti-technology. I, I work for a firm, a philanthropic organization that funds and invests in technology organizations by and large. I think that the question here is, how does automated decision making give us the world that we want rather than just reinforce the world that we have? And I think that with the appropriate safeguards, we can have better algorithmically designed systems that are less biased than the reality we live in. The question is a question of transparency and accountability. The biggest fear I have in these situations is the public sector by these tools and has no idea how they work. So I think what we need to have is the ability to audit the algorithms. And it's not the individual citizen to audit the algorithms. It's you. It's the economist. It's journalists. It's ProPublica and others. The problem we have right now is that the foremost investigation of algorithms, so used, done by ProPublica, had to tediously, for months and at great expense, reverse engineer the algorithms used by the company in case to understand whether and how the bias worked. What I'm asking for is for availability of the training data, availability of the inputs and the outputs of the algorithm so that we can test it. And so these data rights that you're referring to are in fact also algorithmic rights insofar as transparency and explainability. Yes, absolutely. Martin, it's fascinating to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you.
As regular Babbage listeners know, we occasionally give away a book to one listener who has answered one of our silly, subjective questions with suitable pith. On a recent show, we offered a copy of a book by the Economist language correspondent Lane Green titled Talk on the Wild Side, The Untamable Nature of Language. To get the copy, listeners were asked to produce the shortest sentence in English that a computer might never be able to translate. We were flooded with great answers. Often there were one-word sentences like fire, which could mean to shoot or an inferno or something else. Another was the sentence, buffalo, 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 buffalo. It's a real sentence. Trust me. Look it up on Wikipedia. But our favorite and the winner is the old man, the boats. With us to explain why it's so hard for a computer to translate that is Lane Green himself. Hello, Lane. Hello, Ken. Lane. Okay, so the important thing to know, if you haven't figured it out yet, is that the old man, the boats, is a legit sentence. You just have to remember that man is also a verb, so that gets you there. We're saying the old people, man, the boats. And this throws every uh, language I've tried it on in Google Translate and surely in other things. It comes out with a translation like in German, der alte Mann die Boote. So it does exactly what your brain did the first time you heard that, which is, make the old man into a noun phrase, and then it comes to a crashing halt when you just get another noun phrase, the boats. So both Google Translate and people hearing this on first mention uh, fail to notice that man is also a verb and then re-parse it in their brain and, uh, and make it make sense. And the reason this is interesting is because a computer does essentially the same thing the human brain does in this case. It is probabilistic. So Google Translate in English and German say is trained on a lot of parallel text that's already been translated by human beings. We have millions of words in English that have been translated by humans into millions of words of German. And you turn a Google Translate or another system loose on these translations, and it learns from probabilities what words are likely to be translated as what in German, and not just one by one, because you obviously can't translate most things just word, 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 but it also looks at two word, three word, and longer combinations. And so the old man is a very common noun phrase in spoken and written English. And so the data that our Google Translate has been trained on has exactly the same inclination that we do. It sees the old man and immediately just says that has to be a noun phrase. I've seen this a million times before. So the reason this is interesting is precisely because our probabilistic, blind, unthinking machine is really following the same – they call it a garden path – following the same garden path the wrong way as the human mind does when it sees this sentence. It's relying on the frequency of a fairly fixed phrase, the old man. Lane, thank you very much. The submission, The Old Man, The Boats, comes from Jim Jacobs, and Lane Green is going to now sign his book. Next, we travel to the outer regions of the cosmos. In her latest book, Our Universe, an Astronomer's Guide, Joe Dunkley, a professor of physics and astrophysical sciences at Princeton University, takes us from the very beginnings of the universe right up to massive, strange phenomena like superclusters, quasars, and the geometry of space-time. To discuss the universe and everything in it, including her own career in cosmology, Professor Dunkley joins me now. Hello, Joe. Hello, Ken. My first question, Joe, is where are we? We're in a big place. <laughs> we, we are here on Earth, but we have this much bigger home around us. 
we are just one small space in a much bigger thing. You've spent your career thinking about that bigger space. So tell me, how do you situate us in the universe? We're certainly not unique, or are we? I don't think we're unique. Something that I learned about the universe is how big it is and how full of other places that probably resemble our own home here on Earth. I think it is helpful to... It's helpful to me, certainly, to be able to picture where we live in this bigger space. It makes it less unfamiliar and less overwhelming in a way to me. But here we are. We live in our solar system, which we kind of know know about best. But we also live in this giant great galaxy, this Milky Way galaxy full of stars. I sometimes wonder if our sort of worship of physics and biology deludes us into seeing things that are not to be seen because we don't have the instrumentation to identify it in the same way that an astronomer prior to Henrik Hertz wouldn't have been thinking about electromagnetic spectrum and would only be looking through what the eye can see in a telescope. Have you thought about this and how would we even step forward into a new form of physics to think about the universe in a different way? Well, if we're thinking about looking for, for example, signs of life, then We kind of know what we need to do. We need to have big enough telescope to see a planet in some detail. We need to be able to look at the atmosphere around it and look for hints of elements in the atmosphere that wouldn't be there if there weren't life to reproduce it. So, for example, ozone, oxygen, things that would get depleted. And this is just by applying the physics we know, things that would get depleted if you didn't have life there. Now, there's a whole different part of what I do, which needs to come up with new physics that we don't have yet. But to me, this idea of searching for signatures of life on different planets or finding planets themselves, that needs improved telescopes that we see the path to. It's just a long path. Let's actually back up and tell me, what is the old physics and what is the new physics? Okay, the old physics is, um, so we have Einstein's theory of gravity. So it tells us how gravity works. And then we also have quantum mechanics that tells us how things work on the small scales. We already know that we have to have a piece of new physics that ties them together. So, for example, at the beginning of the universe, we had a big bang when everything was incredible, you know, huge things were incredibly condensed together. At that point, quantum mechanics and gravity or general relativity come together and they're not actually consistent. So we know we, we can't actually describe what happened at the very first instances of the universe. The other part of the current physics, or compared to the new physics, the current physics, we have this standard model of particles. We have this sort of accounting of everything that we are made of, everything we we think the world is made of. But we have discovered through looking at the skies that there is this invisible part of the universe. It's called dark matter. It seems to be a new particle, or that's what that's our best guess anyway, something that makes up that's five times more plentiful or more massive than all the things we do know of. So that's the piece of new physics we need that's either one new particle or like tons of new particles. Do you expect that to be uncovered in your lifetime? I hoped that it would be already. So there was one quite popular idea of what this new particle might be. It was a thing called a supersymmetric particle. There's this rather elegant theory that says actually all the particles we know of have like a partner called a super partner. <laughs> um, we should all have a super partner. <laughs> Didn't Aristophanes write about this a couple thousand years ago? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's kind of appealing. And we'd hope that we might be able to make, create some of these in the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. 
but none have been seen. So either it's kind of hiding just beyond reach and it still exists, it's still there, and we just haven't found it yet, and we could make it in my lifetime. Or it's something that is really invisible, which means it could be beyond the reach of my lifetime or many lifetimes. I truly hope not. What would you like your contribution to be? Well, so one of the things I'm working intensely on is trying to see what happened in the first instance of the universe's life. I'm looking for evidence of this very energetic expansion of the universe in the earliest moments. There's, a, there's an idea called inflation, <laughs> cosmic inflation. And it's an idea that says that kind of motivates how the universe began. And I'm looking for these things called gravitational waves. They're ripples, space-time itself rippling as this first moment of the Big Bang happened. And how are you trying to do that? I use a telescope in the north of Chile in the Atacama Desert. It's called the Atacama Cosmology Telescope. And we're actually upgrading it now. We're building some new telescopes at the same place called the Simons Observatory that are particularly devoted to looking for this signal. And the way we do it is we're actually looking back as far as you can look out into the universe. You look out into space and you see back in time. The further you look, the further back in time you see because light has to get to you. And I look at the light that's been traveling the longest from actually just after the Big Bang itself, about 14 billion years. It's been around since before there were any stars or any galaxies. It's this kind of faint glow from the Big Bang itself. And if these gravitational waves existed, they would have actually distorted that light and um, actually given it this particular polarization, this particular orientation. And I want to find it. Good luck. Thank you. Joe Dunkley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And finally, are the oceans getting bluer? A new study suggests that the increase in global temperature is also having an effect on the color of the oceans, turning it a different shade of blue. The slight increase in heat will change the mixture of photoplankton in the seas as it is in these tiny marine organisms that help to give the ocean its shade of blue. To discuss this, I'm joined on the phone by MIT's Stephanie Dutkwitz, the principal researcher of the study. Hello, Stephanie. Thanks, Ken, for having me. So the world's waters are going to turn a little bit more bluer over time. Why is this? Well, the water looks blue because of the things in the water. And one of the things in the water are phytoplankton. These are the, at the base of the marine food web, the plants, essentially. And looks like a potential happening in the future world is that the phytoplankton are going to decline. They're going to be less of them. Um, and in that case, the water, water looks even bluer. So why is there going to be less phytoplankton? Well, climate change is going to alter the oceans, um, in particular how the ocean mixes and some of the ocean currents and circulation. Phytoplankton need light um, that they get by being near the surface of the ocean. They also need nutrients, and those nutrients come from deep in the ocean. What's going to happen with climate change is some of the uh, ability for water from the deep ocean to coming to the surface and in bringing those rich nutrients to the surface is going to be um, a lot less. And so essentially the phytoplankton are going to be starving. So bluer water, big problem for mankind. Yes, that would essentially be it. The other piece that is important in them there is they also are an incredibly important part of the uh, carbon cycle. And by taking up carbon near the surface of the ocean, when they die, that carbon is taken to the bottom of the ocean. They essentially store a lot of ocean, a lot of carbon in the ocean. And so if we were to sort of 
kill off the phytoplankton, all of that carbon would come back out into the atmosphere and cause even more of a problem. And how far along are we on this? Is it reversible at the stage that we're at? Reversible is a, it would be an interesting way of asking that question. I think we have done some irreparable damage, but the, we could certainly curtail how bad it is by changing fairly soon. When you ask how big it is, it's actually quite difficult to measure because there's natural variability in the system. There's some years there's lots of phytoplankton in some places and less than others and, and vice versa. What our study showed is that probably within the next couple of decades, we really will begin to notice this. It could be the changes will be bigger than the natural variability. So we're on the path already, but how much worse it gets really depends on what we do over the next couple of decades. Stephanie Dutkovich, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for your interest in the study. And that's all for this week's edition of Babbage. If you like our journalism, consider taking out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. And if you like the program, rate us on Apple Podcasts. These ratings matter a lot because it allows more people to discover and enjoy the program. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. 